0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: So you did something already, and you're going to do something more still. And we sit in between that moment now in between what's been done and and what will be done and now in this time of what you are doing, sometimes we have less than glorious days. Sometimes we face trouble. And so will you, Lord, now sustain us in this time for that day? Give us eyes to see the glory that's coming. His eyes to see what you have done and will do. And use this passage this morning towards that end. Use this passage here, Lord, to open our eyes, to remind us, and to encourage, to build up, to, to grow us just a little bit more this morning, to sustain us really in the middle here, in this time now, while we await the glorious day and maybe look at a day that's not quite so glorious now. So help us use this passage this morning, Spirit of God. Would you grow your people and would you honor Jesus? Build your church, Lord, please, this morning. Make your word clear. We look to you for power. We don't trust in any, any human power, any human wisdom, or any human eloquence or any human insight. We look to you for, for t- teaching and for instruction, for building up and for power. Please own our time here now. Make your word clear and build your church And honor the Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What do you make of a guy who says, I love to suffer. It makes me happy, really happy. You probably take your loved ones and move the other side of the street give them a little bit of room because that's not quite right that's not normal normal people don't naturally like pain and suffering and hardship we try to avoid it at all costs frankly if if we can we try to get away from it because we don't like it it's not right suffering and hardship and pain are, are are wrong aren't they i mean aren't they So we do all we can to avoid it. But then we meet Paul in our passage today, who is a man of of otherwise very sound and stable mind, and a man who tells us that he rejoices in his sufferings. We'll read that and we'll see that in a minute. And that he consciously pursues that which he knows is going to increase his sufferings and bring him more trouble. And that he's still happy to do that, still eager to do that. That's hard to understand, but we're going to meet that here at the end of Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look at not just that he does that, but why he does that. We'll see the, the, the text, kind of Paul revealing what's on his mind, what's, what's behind that. The gain that he sees, that enables he sees it before he endures the pain, it enables him to kind of take the pain. That's going to inform how we should think and how we should live as well. Paul's moving through Colossians chapter 1, and as we saw last week, as we heard prayed, in fact, we, we've seen him talking about who Jesus is, his, his supremacy, his preeminence. And then we saw what God in Christ has done for the world in general, and then for people in particular, to save particular people and remove off of us condemnation of our past, whatever they were. That's what God's doing in the world. But God does that in the world through people. He he, he works to accomplish making his people holy and blameless before him, but that's executed in the world through individuals, most notably through Paul, which is how he moves in the chapter. Now he talks about his own role in that work. That's the context in which he, he faces and embraces suffering. And as we think about that's that's his role. We, we're going to realize, and that actually didn't stop when Paul died. That's actually our role too. That's how it comes to speak to us. And we'll see that as, as, this, as we work through the passage this morning. It, it's going to mean, if, if that's what Paul's about and that's what we're to be about, it's, it's going to mean that we're also going to meet suffering because we live in the same world that Paul lived in. We're here in a world working with God, in God's power, towards God's goals, but it's a fallen world. It's a world that's, that's hostile. And so it will, it will bring trouble and hardship and suffering, as well as success. But we need to be sober minded about that and, and look at it, at it all and, and see things how Paul sees things, which is to say, we need a miracle. Because what I didn't say is that we need to understand things like Paul understands things. We need to see things like Paul sees things. We need a miracle to to actually change us within so that we actually see things like Paul saw them. So what we're about this morning is something impossible. Apart from God. But maybe God would move this morning and would use this passage and use something in it this morning to, to open our eyes and... And cause us to see like Paul did. So that's what we're after this morning. I'm going to make two observations from the passage, but first let me read it. This is verses 24 to the end of chapter 1 in Colossians. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. End of Colossians 1. make two observations. Here's the first. Suffering is a necessary part of these times of gospel growth. Suffering is a necessary part of these times of gospel growth. The passage begins with verse 24, which is one of, if not the, most confusing verse in the whole book of Colossians. We immediately meet this oddity of, of Paul rejoicing in sufferings, and then we, right after that, meet another oddity, How he explains that, it's confusing. How Paul's suffering, what what he's doing, what he's experiencing, what he's meeting in the flesh is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, it says. Which is confusing and has spawned all kinds of interesting and even heretical explanations. But I think most of our confusion can be removed if we take a step back and look at a larger picture, a a larger picture that Paul and his audience both understood, which, which, if you kind of think about this, this makes some sense. If you're ever listening to two people talk and one says something you don't understand and then clarifies and explains it in a way that you are further confused by, you might guess that the two of them understand something that you don't. Because he thinks that explained it. That actually just doubled down the confusion for me. What, what what are they what are they talking about? So we might be like alerted to something there, just by the course of how conversation works, but then we notice something else in the original language when it says Christ's afflictions, the word the is actually there. The afflictions of Christ. Some, something in particular. And then that word afflictions, that's not common language for Paul to describe things like. How have we seen it already in this chapter? The cross, his body, bloodshed, his death, crucifixion. This Paul does not usually use, that, that's, not, that's not Pauline language to talk about the last week of Jesus' life, his, his, his beating and his, his suffering and his death and his burial. To call that afflictions is not how Paul talks about it. So we, we notice these clues, and we might be then suspicious. What, what are we, we on to here? And, and while not all agree, certainly, as I said, there's been a ton of discussion about this verse. I think what's by far most likely is that we have something here that Jewish and then Christian worshipers back in that day would have understood and would have called, not using the word Christ, they would have used the word Messiah, same word, different language, the Messiah. Afflictions of Messiah, the messianic afflictions, or sometimes called the messianic woes. From the Old Testament through other Jewish writings that aren't in the Bible, and even picked up by Jesus, when in the Gospels he talks at the end of his life about the coming days, there was a pattern in the scriptures and then elaborated on in writing and in discussion. Discussion that understood this. Before and leading up to the coming of Messiah, there would be trouble and hardship. Before he comes, the people of Messiah, those who are looking forward to his coming, those who trust in him, those who depend on him, those who long for him, will suffer affliction because of him. Because they bear his name, because they're after him, because they're looking and leaning towards him, they will be like him—turned away, afflicted, hurt—and then they'll be delivered. You can hear this, and in, for instance, you could jot down Daniel chapter twelve verse one. You can see it there. To paraphrase, it says, "And there will be a time of trouble such as has never been, and then your people will be delivered." everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. You can see there a pattern that was, that was established and then elaborated on and understood. There's going to be a time of great trouble, and then those whose names are written in the book will be delivered. But before that, there is the period of afflictions of Messiah. The Messianic woe is sometimes called the birth pains of Messiah. Jesus used that phrase himself and then the people are delivered. That's Paul's point here. and In verse 24, what he's saying is that he himself, we might say, is uniquely the point person of pain for the sake of the church. If you stick with the birth analogy about people being, being birth pains, being delivered, God is birthing the church, and Paul uniquely is the one being stretched and broken suffering in order for that birth to happen. Paul was given a job, a stewardship, it says here. He's entrusted with a responsibility. We know from Acts 9 that when God saved Paul, Paul Paul heard a message from him, and I will show him how much he must suffer. Not as punishment. He's not punishing Paul for his past life. He's, He's saying, I'm... Putting you in this spot right here. I'm I'm putting you in this in this stewardship where you're gonna be the one through whom the church is birthed uniquely. And that means suffering for you. You're gonna be shipwrecked and stoned. You'll receive beatings from countless people, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be exposed to elements, you'll be essentially homeless and frequently hungry hated by all kinds of people and then eventually you'll die that's what it costs to preach Christ and see the church birthed and built up and moved on towards its final deliverance here in a fallen hostile world like this That's what it costs for my people to be delivered and Paul uniquely is going to pay that cost It hasn't all been paid yet because that time's not over. But what Paul is saying here is, is that was said to me, and what I can say right now is remember how I just wrote that it's being proclaimed in all creation under heaven, the verse right before? Or how back in verse 6, this is the gospel, it's growing and bearing fruit in all the earth. Well, that's largely because of my own sweat and blood. Literally, my own sweat and my own blood. That's happening in me. And I couldn't be more delighted. I mean, I can, I can, like, imagine what it's like to be stoned so badly that they think you're dead. I can't imagine rejoicing in that. Can you? They throw rocks at you, so many that hit you so hard that they look at you and think, He's dead. And they walk away. (laughs) Yippee. What? 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 He rejoices at his sufferings, not because he's a masochist. Three times he says, in some way, my sufferings for your sake. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister when I was given the stewardship for you. End of verse 25. Paul doesn't love to hurt, he's not a masochist. What does Paul love? Not what does Paul know is appropriate and proper and right. What does Paul love? Paul loves the church because he loves the Christ of the church. A miracle has happened. Now, we all, I'm, 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 I'm emphasizing the miracle right here because we all know, I mean, you can hear this coming from a mile away, that, yeah, suffering is right and proper in this time, and, and sure, I see that, and yes, uh-huh, we're supposed to endure that. And, but that's a long way from I rejoice in my sufferings, because Paul loves something else. A miracle has happened that's moved something from beyond just stuff I know and should be true to actually joy. He doesn't love to hurt, but he loves the church, and he loves Christ And importantly, what that means is that he loves Christ and his church more than he loves his own safety and comfort and pleasure. And so he's willing to pay the price necessary to see that church come into existence to be birthed to the honor of Jesus, and willing to pay as much of that price as he possibly can so that they don't have to pay it themselves. To pay the price needed to see the church come into existence, and to pay the price Instead of, as much as he possibly can, instead of the church, how very like Jesus. To pay the price necessary to see the church come into existence and to pay the price so the church doesn't have to, how very like Jesus. A miracle has happened. Paul has become like Christ in his heart, not because he loves pain. Jesus didn't love pain. Jesus didn't love being nailed to the cross. I love nails. They're fun. No, for the joys that before to me endured the cross. Paul has a heart like Christ, he sees Jesus and he sees his church, that's what he loves. And so, loving that, give me the suffering that's needed to honor Christ, to exalt Christ, and to birth this people and to deliver deliver them. He loves the church and he loves Christ of the church. And so he'll say, "I, I rejoice in my sufferings because of what they bring about. He has a heart like Messiah's, willing to embrace the affliction of Messiah for the sake of delivering the people of Messiah to the honor of Messiah. That's Paul, and and we come in right behind that because as soon as we see, yes, that is uniquely Paul, and we have to set this aside and and kind of honor this piece. That's Paul, and what that means is we all must listen to Paul. Paul. So when Paul writes Colossians, this is the word of God. It's, it's in a different way echoing what he said in very verse 1 of chapter 1, the apostle of Christ by the will of God. And we talked about that verse. What we said is what that means is that this is, we can say, Paul says, Paul writes, Paul urges, and that's the same thing as saying God writes, God says, God urges, and we have to listen to him. So we got to say that piece, we got to honor that piece. Yes, this is the word of God when it's Paul's word. But seeing what, what, what we're about here, what this, what this is about here, what he's undertaking, we also realize that immediately, here's Paul with a heart like Messiah. Actually, that's supposed to be us too. And here's Paul undertaking a mission for the sake of the church. That's not over, though Paul's dead. And we realize then, yeah, that's, that's actually us too. This is, this is for us too. This is more than just information about Paul, more than just telling us how to view Paul. There's a word here for us. These are the times in which the church is being built, which means these are the times in which the price of suffering is still being paid. These are not the times of glory and rest, and ease, and celebration. Affliction and hardship. In order for the kingdom to be built, for God's people, for all of them, to be born and delivered, and then finally, ultimately, completely delivered, once, now, and then once fully, when all the full number of the people of God can come in, then the end will come. But we're still in this time now, still going on now, which means suffering is still the order of the day now. Which is really hard for us. Really hard for us to compute. Not just because we're people. But especially because we, most of us have lived in America for a a long time and we have become used to some things. Erroneously, I would argue erroneously, if we want to argue about this later, we can, but erroneously we say, this is a Christian country. And then we're discovering, no it isn't. I would argue that it never was. But it certainly was much friendlier towards the Christian message. And and the Christian message had much more respect and had had a much larger standing. And so it seems to us that basically we should should be able to talk about these things. We should be able to talk about Jesus. We should be able to call people to believe in Jesus from a position of, of power and respect and authority, privilege. And that fits, doesn't it? Because God is God, God is Almighty. God, God reigns, God's good, God loves us, his people, so it certainly fits, doesn't it, that, that God who reigns would cause his message to have a position of, of height and, and authority and, and come from a position of respect and that we, his spokespeople, would be protected and honored and lifted up and not persecuted? Certainly, right? Doesn't that fit? And we can look back and say that was, it seems, the experience... So we expect it today and tomorrow, and it's not the case anymore. It isn't going to be the case next month and next year and the year after. We're unsettled by problems that aren't going away and are, in fact, increasing. We're unsettled by A a society around us that is increasingly in disagreement and disagreeable. If God is real, shouldn't that be the other way around? Shouldn't the gospel be advancing and, and kind of winning? But it feels like it's losing. It feels like I'm losing. We don't have a place for the answer. Actually, nothing's wrong. This is the way it is and is supposed to be in this period of gospel growth. Paul said to the churches, we can read this in Acts, it is necessary that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary, that's that's normal, that's right. Why? That in some ways, to try to answer that question, why is a whole other sermon, but we'll touch on that. There's something unique about a Messiah delivering people in difficulty. That's what he was like a deliverer of faced difficulty, it's something that matches there. I think it's necessary that he take us through this path of suffering and difficulty to give kind of tangible realness to the message there's more to say about that the point here now is that this is the way it is so can you trust god through it will you will you trust god through it will you will you see it as that's that's right that that is normal to be expected or instead Will you pursue the approval of the world above all else? I'm not saying it's wrong to be approved by friends and by the world. Above all else is the problem. Will you pursue comfort above all else? I think the point here is as I kinda as I kind of work through this in my own mind, it's it's not really about go out and pursue hardship, it's about what do I expect? What do I think is going on? And what am I willing to, to allow to, to come to me as I engage with a Christ-centered and people-loving, costly ministry? Do you expect that to love Christ and his church will mean suffering? Suffering. That's okay. You expect that. But to love Christ and his church, that's, that's the miracle. How, do, how does that happen? Well, maybe it comes from reflecting a little bit on, on the next point, the second point. So here now in this period of gospel growth, suffering, hardship, affliction, difficulty is, is the norm, is the way it is. But here's the second point. And it kind of answers one of our challenges, one of our fears. God sustains and empowers ministry in order to mature his people in Christ. God sustains and empowers ministry in order to mature his people in Christ. So, obviously, as we've seen, this, this is about Paul. And as we're in verse 25, it's still Paul talking about Paul. What God's doing in Paul, but this is going to end up coming around to speak to us as well here. But but first, it's Paul given a stewardship, entrusted with some unique role, responsibility. And what is it? Very end of the verse, verse 25 to make the Word of God fully known, which does not mean to teach all of the Bible. As soon as we hear Word of God and we think Bible right away, which is not bad, but that's not what he means in this case. He explains what he means, if you keep reading the very next phrase, to make the word of God fully known, that is, the mystery hidden for ages past. So Paul's assignment was to make fully known this mystery. he He has a word from God that's about revealing a mystery. God had a plan from eternity past hidden. No one knew about it. Not even the Old Testament prophets knew about it though they grasped little pieces and saw little glimpses of it, but it was hidden from them. And and that's the sense in which we have a mystery on our hands here now. Something that was hidden in the past but has now been revealed widely, publicly everywhere. Importantly, it has been revealed widely, publicly, everywhere. Not to some unique, elite knower group not to some particular man off somewhere in a cave or off somewhere in a forest and then we have to hear from him what God has said not even to Paul uniquely you recall obviously Paul's unique role here but you remember from the book of Acts when Paul understood this he went and then checked it with the rest of the apostles is this is this the message and they all knew it and said oh yeah it's been revealed to all the saints We do not have a a religion that funnels us to one man who says this is the truth. No, 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 no. Even when we talk about the uniqueness of Paul, this has been revealed widely and publicly. It's a mystery that it was hidden but has now been made wide open known. What is it? What's, What's the great plan of God? Well, verse 27 tells us, start at the end, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's, I, I think that it's, it's right here that if God's going to do a miracle, this might be what he uses. So pray, God, open my eyes to cause me to see this. God says, I planned and I worked out for my people to have union with Messiah, the indwelling of Christ, my presence, my king, which means my, my rule, my kingdom rule. It is indeed over all of the creation, over all of the earth. And as was talked about already, it is powerfully poured out on all the earth to make it all right, to remove from it all fallenness and all curse and all sin. It's fixed. It's all my reign and my king is out there. Yes, indeed. And this is alarming. This is amazing. This is glorious. The King, my presence, my power, my reign that makes everything right and everything new and gives life and gives joy and delight and sweetness and beauty, everything out there is also in here. God did not just save us to take us then into, to pick, bring us through the door, if you remember from a few weeks ago, bring us through the door and say, look at, at all of my power and glory and wisdom and beauty and my presence and my rule. Look what I've done. But he said, also, I'm going to climb into you and do that within your own very own heart and mind and soul and in the world in which I place you. That is Amazing. If you think of the balloon, the, real sh- the shorthand way that we've been talking about, union with Christ, God said, I'm going to place you in the balloon, and then by the power of my spirit, I'm going to place me inside of you. I'm going to do this with you, that the hope of glory would be in you. Now this gets maybe a little theologically complicated, but try if you can to step back and climb into the balcony overseeing the beauty of heaven. What's beautiful about heaven? What has been beautiful about heaven from eternity past? That God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, the one true God, that God has been for eternity past like this with himself, fully enjoying everything that he meets. Because every time he turns around, he bumps into himself. Every time he thinks about anything, he thinks about himself. Every time he talks to someone, he talks to himself. Every time he hears a word from someone, he hears it from himself. This is a little strange, but that's I'm trying to describe what the communion, the union of the Trinity is like. God communing with God is a happy and sweet and beautiful and holy and blameless and glorious reality. And all of heaven is happy and glorious and beautiful, not because there are streets paved with gold and gold's cool to walk on. Not even because everything that we have here works, but because that union is at the center of it. And out of that glorious, delightful union radiates beauty and joy everywhere. And so everything in heaven is beautiful and glorious. And God said, not only do I just bring you into that, I put that inside of you. I bring you into the clutch. Not that we become God. We're creatures. We're creatures. Forever, creatures. But we become partakers of that divine glory. Partakers of like you eat something, you partake of it. You don't become the thing you eat, but you partake of it. We become partakers of that when that moves in and takes up residence in here. The gospel is not just about let me forgive your sin and let me bring you into a place that's beautiful. It's about let me bring you into me and me into you. That's amazing. What's glorious about God is that God would want to bring that glory into me, given my past, given your past, This is a God who loves with a wide, long, high, deep love and who loves with determination because he's the one who makes that happen. And what's doubly amazing, that is equally for Gentiles too. The dogs. Gentiles too. Which is good news because most of us are Gentiles. This is union with the Messiah of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fully bestowed. How great among the Gentiles this is. Fully bestowed on Gentiles without them having to become Jews first. This is the God of people who blesses all the nations through Abraham by giving to the nations the blessing he promised Abraham. My spirit in you, you in me, This is what he planned. How he was going to accomplish that was completely unknown. But then he did it. And then he raised up Paul, uniquely so, to be a spokesman of that to the Gentiles. Go and tell the Gentiles about this. But don't just, he doesn't want him to just go as kind of like a spokesman giving a a public service announcement. When it says he makes fully known this word, this message, he's not just going to say, here's the deal, done. Fully known really literally it's fulfilled he wants it accomplished God intends not that this just be and be known but that it be done he wants Gentiles actually to hope in this hope actually to trust this one actually to experience this union wants people to have the full experience of him we could come at this another way because Paul comes at it another way down in verse 28. Christ we proclaim so that we present everyone mature in Christ. That's another way of saying to experience fully the union with God, to, to be mature in Christ. That's what Paul sees as his goal, as his mission, as his job. Go to the Gentiles and help them towards maturity in Christ that's my goal that's my mission but in fact if you think about this if you're tracking with it that's actually God's goal that's actually God's mission and he raised up Paul to do it because he wants it done It's God the one who dreamed it up and planned it made it possible by sending his son and then saved Paul and sent him and verse 29 empowers him and sustains him in it through all the toil and all the trial and all the suffering and all the affliction and all the stones and all the shipwrecks and all the loneliness, God says, here's what I'm about. Here's what I want you to be about. Don't worry, I'll be with you. And I will sustain you and I will empower this. Because I want it done. Paul elsewhere said, who is able to do this? And God says, I'll do it in you. I will have a people reached and claimed and saved and blessed and matured. And so I will empower you, give you energy and work it in you. So it's good to know this about Paul. But here's where this comes around to us. If you notice this closely, not just by the logic of that's still going on and Paul's dead, though that's helpful logic, But notice that the language shifts. Paul in the beginning is, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. It's I and me language. And then in 28, we, him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature. And then back to himself, I toil. So Paul Paul, Paul knows this is something that's that's uniquely me, but not only me. There's a we here too. Really, it's the mission of the church. It's the ministry of God through all his church. It is our common and sweet, but in this time costly ministry to proclaim Christ towards the goal of maturity in Christ. Towards the goal of delivering God's people into maturity in Christ. Towards the goal of seeing the people of God delighting in God to the glory of God. This is a privilege. It's it's a sweet opportunity. It's a privilege to proclaim it to people out there who don't yet know it But there is, in in particular, an application of this in here to people who do already know it. So, If you think about these words, maturity, and you, you look at 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ, Paul is not talking about just something that is simple and momentary like an evangelistic presentation. Here's the gospel, I'm done. Here's the gospel, and I've started. See the difference? Here's the gospel, and I'm done, but here's the gospel, and I've started now, and now I'm going to warn and teach in all wisdom because the goal is maturity in Christ. This is really very similar to parenting, if you think about it. I've given birth. I'm done. No, actually, i am just started. I've got 20 more years of this. <laughs> There's a cost that's started really in pregnancy and then is uniquely started in birth, but it doesn't go away. It just it just morphs and changes as you have to warn and then teach and train. It, it's kind of discipleship. It's kind of what he's talking about, it's discipleship here. I, I've got... This it, it's always changing depending on who's sitting across the table from me, who's sitting in the driver's seat of the car with me, who's going off on her own from me. It, it's always changing, but it's never ending. Maturity is a long way down the road. But that's his goal, and that's our goal. That's the goal of the church, that Christ would be formed, not just known, but that Christ would be formed that we each would be conformed to him in in maturity, that we would grow up so that we would live up into and then live out all that it means to be in Christ. Which is several other sermons and some of the sermons that are going to follow. But that's the mission of the church It's the primary purpose of a local congregation to to watch for one another, to watch out for one another's souls because our goal for us is maturity in Christ. But there is no way that I'm going to pay the cost for that job. Because let alone encountering the world out there, sometimes that's actually easier than dealing day in and day out with that guy, with those ones. We will fall and fail, and then hear a sermon like this and struggle forever under guilt and burden. You got to love the body. You got to care about the body. You got to love the people of God. You got to love Jesus. I, I got to love. I got I to. Gotta. There's a difference between I got to love and loving. A miracle must happen. We need this energy from Christ to, to work in me. That's not just Energizer Bunny energy that keeps going and going. It, there's a huge, meaning, really, there's a heart change that happened there. We, we need that different perspective like Paul had. So where do we get it? Like Paul got it. By looking to the one who first spent himself to save, to deliver, to warn, and to teach in all wisdom of people who were wandering far from him. The Messiah himself, of course, first bore the messianic woes. Despised and rejected and disregarded, and then bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, as was read already today. For our iniquities, for our transgressions, including the self centeredness and the the love of self and the love of comfort that often plagues us when we look at that guy. Christ died for that guy too. Actually, more importantly, Christ died for this guy who doesn't love that guy like Christ loves that guy. May he give us eyes to see the church, his bride, and him, the bridegroom, like he does, and to love Christ and to love Christ's church like he does, and to spend ourselves to see his people grow into maturity in him like God has been after forever. Let me pray. Lord, help us because this is impossible. We've just engaged in something impossible. We've talked about change in our loves, would you work in us and make us different? Would you build your church and would you honor your son and would you carry us into the delight that you mean for us to know in union with you? Mature us and grow us up, please, Lord, we trust this to you. Amen. Amen.